One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. It's autumn statement horrific today as we reflect on Philip Hammond's first big set piece, first big financial set piece. Um, yeah. You were mocked for calling it that, weren't you, His Stephen? first big fiscal event, uh, yes. But in the safe space of the podcast, we can say that I think you were right to say that because it is it was an interesting test of where the government is. We're also joined by our Staggers editor, Julia Rampant, who... Is I would say the member of the team with the most understanding of numbers, having come to us from a, a money section. So um, if Stephen or I say anything that is enumerate, please feel free to chip in. Um, Stephen, first of all, give me the give me the five top fun facts about the autumn statement for those of us who who weren't paying as much attention as we could have been, perhaps. Uh, I suppose. So the interesting things were, one of the things which didn't happen, there was no extra funding for variously health, further education, social or social care, all of which have to varying degrees of public prominence uh, been crying out for more money. Uh, none of them got it. Uh, the second was the loosening of the deficit target. The third was the interesting thing that... The first thing Philip Hammond did was basically stand up and go, I'm going to give myself a lot more fiscal headroom. Then throughout the rest of the budget, he didn't really use the rest of the fiscal headroom. He could have very easily funded all of the spending announcements that he made and still theoretically kept to Osborne's target. Um, Which indicates, presumably, that he thinks that he might have to make further adjustments next year as the kind of costs of Brexit become apparent. Well, yeah, he he knows that if he'd stood up and gone, yeah, look, it's probably going to be really bad. Um, we need to be really worried about it now. He would have been called, you know, an enemy of the people, etc., etc. And, you know, the right-wing press would have poured all number of types of excrement over him. But what he doesn't want is for next year or the year after to have to do a U-turn in the same year as having to reassure markets with more spending. So, yeah, he kind of started saying, I'm not a magician, but he actually has done a sort of small magic trick. And then he's kind of gone, right, I'm going to move my targets now. And my instinct is this will be uh, that we will see the fruit of that in uh, 2019 when we get a, uh, a more free spending budget than he otherwise would have been able to afford. What are the other interesting points? Housing associations. Uh, the right to buy housing associations is still, in theory, going ahead. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that actually happens, to be honest, because uh, the thing about right to buy is there are lots of arguments you can make about it. However, it was. <laughs> it's a great were, euphemism. There, there were they were the government's houses to sell. Housing association properties aren't the government's 
in the first place, right? Like that, the, the government. Never mind the fact that the replacement rate has been pretty atrocious so far. Social housing waiting lists are incredibly long, and actually, the promised bounty that was going to be sort of selling off these big houses in order to rebuild smaller ones has not apparently come to pass. Letting fees—that also happened—an end to upfront letting fees. Uh, I remember. I think Alex Hearn, formerly of this parish, marked that one of the strangest things that had happened in the last five years was that Shelter, formerly a charity for the homeless, has increasingly become a charity for renters, right? Yeah, I was really, sorry to jump in here, but I was really happy about that because we campaigned about that in the mirror and um, I used to talk to people who'd been affected firsthand, not just friends who were annoyed about paying letting, um, letting fees, but people who were disabled and could only find a certain number of homes that suited them, paid up front and then discovered that they were losing um, the house four months later and didn't get any fees back. So, Losing their house, why? Because the landlord just wanted to uh, move on, get a different letting agent. Wow. Um, and then, so number five? Do um, we have five. A f- I mean, actually, I have 4.1, which is actually, Shelter have always been a housing charity, not a homelessness charity. But you know what I mean? In yeah. terms of a shift of kind of emphasis, is um, how people thought about them, right? Now they just have to do so much more work for kind of, basically, 20-somethings on reasonable incomes are now also a group that struggles with their housing. Yeah. In, um, in London and the South East, at least. And, oh, what, there was a fifth one. We could talk about je- um, debt hitting 90%, a projected 90% of GDP. I mean, I think that, you mentioned that earlier, but the kind of, the sort of, the sort of weird gaslighting that's kind of seems to be happening to people who weren't that in favour of austerity and being told that actually one of the things we really needed to do was kind of tighten our belts and then that was, you know, the idea that if you didn't, if you actually loosened the taps a bit, that was kind of, you know, horribly spendthrift. You know, as it has been has been vindicated, you know, Hammond has, has junk those Osborne targets and actually is is borrowing a, a huge amount. Yeah, uh, he is. But I mean, it's also in in December twenty fourteen when I was still at the Telegraph. I realised I wrote a piece going, you know, basically kind of going, look, it's twenty nineteen. And Rachel Reeves is forlornly saying that Sadie Javid has, in fact, only just missed the Ed Balls deficit <laughs> yeah, I remember target. that. So, um, so yeah, and parts I... of that article, it turns out, have not played out the way I <laughs> thought they would. Um, but I think the problem for Labour and austerity, and I know I've said this before, so apologies, apologies to listeners for repeating myself, but is one, their promise is it will hurt, Right. And, and, and it has. And so they've kind of kept their promise. That's why it's such an effective political tactic. The difficulty for, for Labour now and Labour then, and indeed any opposition which wants an economic policy which makes sense, is that it's really difficult to work out what to do when the government moves towards you. Yeah, like, do you do you kind of declare victory? This was the do Ian Duncan you, Smith like, universal credit resignation problem, right? So you, Ian Duncan Smith resigned saying, actually, universal credits have turned into just a punitive way to cut benefits. And the question is, do you attack him for saying, thank God Ian Duncan Smith's come over to the side and said what we already agreed with? Or do you attack him for saying he presided over a really terrible regime for the last couple of years? Or Donald Trump making a te- like a, mod- a vaguely moderate sane cabinet appointment, right? How can you welcome that... Or, or, or more, probably a better example is him ditching mad policies. If he ditches the wall policy, right, you kind of have to welcome that. But equally well, you know, you, 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 you want to attack him for not keeping his promises, but yeah. also you very much didn't want him to keep that promise. I think John McDonnell's quite interesting in this respect because he kind of claimed victory after um, Theresa May promoted a more interventionist government, which is correct, but also makes it harder to work out what he's for. Okay, let's let's deal with a McDonald-shaped elephant in the room because I I find it really fascinating that 
whatever else you said about John, uh, John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn, you know, the fact was that people wanted them to smash the consensus, right? They wanted people to present radical ideas and opposition. They wanted people to say things, even in the teeth of howling right-wing press outrage, that people had not dared to say before, you know, under the millet band regime that, that triangulated and tried to kind of come to a, a moderate compromise position. That's, as I understand it, was the premise. John McDonnell now, as Stephen blogged earlier this week, saying that people on £42,000 a year have been hit hard by the Tories, when in fact that group's done pretty well, actually. You know, it's, it's the just managings who've really been screwed over the last five years or so. Um, now saying that they will um, they will fight for the triple lock at the time when the Tories have just about kind of realised that actually it's, that's unfair, it's an unfair redistribution of wealth towards older people. What else has he done that I find? Oh, the and then the immigration stuff as well, kind of going, well, actually, you know, the single market, people don't like freedom of, of movement. I thought that the point of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell was to say really unpopular things that were left-wing, right, and not to make the kind of compromises that the, the Millibandites made. Yeah, but, I mean, I think in some ways it exposes the, the difficulty of turning professional, as it were, right? So a lot of the compromises Ed made... Uh, which actually I think a lot of them were were the wrong call to those uh, professional problems, they didn't go away. And one of the problems with both the first leadership election and its less enjoyable remake is that there was this kind of bizarre... There's this bizarre idea, and a lot of people in the Labour Party have, even if you get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, then all of these problems vanish. All all of these problems were eradicated purely by the fact of electing Jeremy Corbyn, Mm. leader of the Labour Party. So take, take the tax thing. I mean, obviously, I'm thrilled about it as, as someone who won't be in the 40p bracket from uh, April 2017. Yeah, why not? Apparently, I have been hard hit by the coalition. It's uh, true. People in Stoke Newington have suffered the yeah, most. We have a, well, I mean, some people in Stoke Newington have suffered the most. Lots of people in my block have suffered the most. Just just not me. Um, um, but the, the difficulty with the threshold raise is that the government is very successfully with reducing and paring down the financial basis of the state, right? Because it is a tax cut which benefits a lot of people, benefits people in the upper end of the income distribution the most, but it is politically very difficult to unpick. That was the challenge for Ed, which is why he ended up where he was on it, and that is also still the challenge for Jeremy and John. However, with both what both sides have done, which I think is a, an odd miscalculation, is that... We know that basically voters start to think that you're raising taxes on ordinary people, politics of envy, etc., etc., even when you're having things like the mansion tax or the 50p rate on really high earners. So if you're going to do that, you might as well make the argument against the threshold raise, which actually is worth some, what's that word, revenue? Like, at that point, you might as well be hung for a a sheep and a lamb and also the threshold raise is is fairly terrifying if you would like the government to do any left-wing things anytime soon particularly because the thing they did yesterday which is the other big thing was was tie uh the the raises will now happen automatically with inflation right which basically means every year more and more the tax base is going to get smaller which means every year what the state can do will concomitantly get smaller striking that they haven't really made that argument because yes every time you cut taxes you lose money from, and that is actually that you can spend on hospitals and schools. I mean, that yeah. was what the you know they very successfully did during the time uh, you know early New Labour was right. Was they always talked about investment, right? They always talked about tax in terms of what it could what it could buy you and about yeah. in terms of what you would put it into. And interestingly, um, the last la- remaining Labour MPs and MSPs in Scotland, um, when they're making the case, with Sc- Scottish Labour has a different policy regarding taxing wealthy people. 
um, they make the argument in terms of this will put money into your local hospital and your local yeah. school. And they make that effectively in a constituency that is one of the wealthiest in Scotland. Um, Julia, we um, last year we saw the looming horror of kind of tax credits coming. Um, do you think there's a similar thing that is going to emerge as day two or three story on this autumn statement? Well, interestingly, I've just finished writing up the Resolution Foundation analysis and what terrified me in it was it was saying this is the worst decade now for pay rises since 1900. Um, to put that into perspective... I think it was about 12% was the average pay rise um, in the noughties. And, uh, From 2000 to 2010? Yeah, whereas now it's about 1, 1.5%, 1.6%. I think that's and, really interesting. Yeah. So we had the Sperry um, New Statesman Prize lecture, which was given by Simon Ren lewis of Oxford University on Tuesday. And he made a very compelling case. Well, first of all, he showed the, the graph of actually um, the deficit and shows you that, you know, actually early Labour wasn't running huge deficits, right? It was the financial crisis that meant that they just had to borrow a huge amount more. Um, and But also the idea that, you know, his thesis is that austerity contributed to the vote to leave the Euro- European Union because what you had was these big cuts to, private, uh, to public services at the same time as a lot of anti-immigration rhetoric. So people naturally assumed that the reason that their public services were struggling was because we were kind of groaning under the weight of, of immigrants. And there was never a more kind of nuanced argument being made that actually immigrants contributed a lot in terms of tax and in terms of um, boosting the economy. And it was a political choice not to use that money to, to fund public services. And it's quite, a, I think it's an appealing thesis. Definitely when you talk to people about migration, they do bring up, you know, inability to get a doctor's appointment or worries about school places in, in terms of yeah. those very kind of bread and butter issues. And the worrying thing from this research actually is I had always assumed, like you said earlier, that it was the um, poorest who were hit the hardest by the recession. And I think that is true when you look at the cuts to public services. But according to this analysis, when you actually just look at income, it was the top earners because a lot of them would be working in, say, the property market or um, in the financial services. But this time they believe that the big hit will be to the lowest uh, third of earners so um, not only do you have public services cut you also have an even bigger squeeze on that group I mean that is fascinating that there's the heavy trailing of this autumn statement was about the just about managings and I don't actually see a lot of jam in there for the just about managings well, at all the reason why the just about managing thing although can we please stop using the word jam no I meant jam in the sense of electoral bribes no right? no, I, no I, I just meant in general not just like in general oh no we got a lecture about this in the Sunday politics from Tom Newton Dunn of the Sun so I'm I'm way ahead on the on the although I pity headline writers because it is very short um but the reason why it's a clever line is everyone thinks they are just about managing right people so when I wrote this piece saying, you know, actually, I'm sorry, the next Labour government should not keep a tax cut on people earning between 42 to 50 grand, right? Actually, those people can afford to pay a bit more. I immediately had lots of people in that bracket going... You don't know how hard it is to uh, rent a house in London, run a car... Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. uh, Pay for violin lessons. Yeah, a variety of things where it's just like, it's like, yes, but these are costs which I... I see the. I can see how you're upset about not being able to meet them. However, with the exception of childcare, where actually this, the amount that you gain back from that tax cut does not fix your childcare problem, uh, a government solution to childcare is is, is going to have to be part of of, of that anyway. Mm. 
But people think they're just about managing. People on, you know, 150K who, you know, had to remortgage their house during the financial crisis to pay for their third child's school fees believe that they are just about managing. You see it with plenty of, um, like, you know, kind of, like, columnists who kind of will kind of describe themselves, you know, like, oh, I'm a struggling millennial who's actually loaded, right? Because they have an idea of themselves as just about managing. So that's why it's a clever line. But in many ways, in terms of who the winners was, it was a classic Osborne budget. The winners were dual earner couples earning above average. Ooh, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, because we've, we've, re- we've had a really tough time, you know. It's been... But, that, but this is a, fa- a fascinating thing, is that actually, I think as you wrote in your piece earlier this week, dual earner couples with no children have had a pretty minted last six years. Yeah, they, they have done... Uh, they are kind of the other half of the Conservative coalition. The other half is, of course, boomer pensioners. Uh, but taken together, and if you think about all of the kind of faintly lefty things that the government has done, they all have mostly targeted those two groups. And then things which are a bit more contentious, like help to buy, who are the biggest winners from help to buy, buy to let boomer landlords and dual earner couples who have got enough income to get a deposit but did not have enough mm. collateral to get a deposit. Yeah, we like, used, we had a, a lot of fun with that in the mirror because when you actually looked at what an affordable house was. I suppose it's like up to six hundred thousand pounds, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, which you know, and even in even in London, that can buy you somewhere very, very nice. Um, thanks for joining us, Julia. We'll hopefully have you back on in the future to talk about uh, things financial. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And Stephen, let's also talk about our cover story this week, which is our editor, Jason Cowley, peace be upon him, uh, his interview with Tony Blair, who is not making a return to frontline politics, but is becoming more involved in domestic politics, right? So he's sold off his Windrush and Firerush um, kind of holding companies that had all his outside interests. He's not going to go off to Kazakhstan or Azerbaijan. I can't remember exactly which of those Central Asian um, places he was a a fan of. And he's going to try and um, stand up for liberal values. And actually, um, I think he says, you know, Brexit could be stopped if that was was people's true will, or certainly is there to wants to provide a counterweight to the hard Brexit that I think people like Nigel Farage and, and the right of the Tory party see as the only true Brexit. Big question, does anyone care what Tony Blair thinks or not? Well, I mean, they self-evidently do care. You know, we could, I could print <laughs> off a traffic gra- gra- graph, which would, I think, comprehensively debunk the no one cares what he thinks argument. Um, I mean, the difficulty is, is as much as I love the blessed Toblerone, um, the things he is doing now are the things that he should have done some time ago. Indeed, there is uh, somewhere in the very distant past of my NS archive, there is a an article in which I said, look, if if he, what he needs to do is divest himself of these money-making organisations and focus on the domestic stuff like the Sports Foundation, the interfaith stuff, which actually is um, doing some quite interesting things. The difficulty is, and this is always the problem in politics, is, you know, your first impressions quite rightly do count. Mm. That actually, we, although people go, oh, the problem is Iraq, 
actually in 2007 people weren't as angry with Tony Blair about Iraq as they are now and that's not because of Chilcot that is because of the the money making the foundation the the various things that he did which were not great so he's not a great messenger for any of those things in the same way as I've said you know on multiple occasions yeah like it's not a great messenger for anti-austerity economics if you also were fairly wobbly on whether or not the IRA should blow people up, right? So it's the same problem. <laughs> don't uh, know who you're talking about. The, the same problem on, for both bits of the, the Labour Party. However, the one thing I've kind of U-turned on both of those things, right, is that, like, we've now got to a situation where the, the right has managed to rehabilitate John Major. Just a, a, a catastrophic failure of a prime minister, right? Whereas the Labour Party... Yeah. Hated Harold Wilson till he died, is now busy saying that that it's most redistribute the most redistributive government in British history. Right? Yes, inequality went up, but there was a huge global headwind which meant that happened. Right? Like, like the 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 anti New Labour people do kind of have to come up with a compelling answer to if it hadn't been there, what would have happened instead? I don't think the left has realised how comprehensively it has been defeated and is in retreat at the moment. I think that's the thing. I, I, I mean, I come to this from the fact that when I was a student, my second year at university was the um, Iraq war demonstration year, right? So that's my really my first big experience of national politics was being very angry about the Iraq war. But I, and, and I, and I know that people feel incredibly strongly about that and with great reason. But my, my worry about it is that it has become... I, I wonder if people are still stuck in that mindset of you've got the luxury of of rebelling against the centre-left, right? Yeah. And actually, well, if you're on the left now, really, you know, the Blairism is not your enemy now. Your enemy is Farageism, right? Your enemy is breaking point posters. It's white nationalists stabbing MPs. It's, you know, it's the threat has completely changed and you have to put aside some of that history of, of internecine left-wing swabbles to focus on what I think is a is a you know is a real a, a huge enemy and I think that's the problem I think for a lot of people who are my age having come up in that environment you still think that the, the thing that you need to defeat is the sort of the center left right and then you get a real left yeah and actually what 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 you know what seems to have happened is we've got a very right-wing government with an even further right set of outriders pouring huge amounts of money into stuff beyond that yeah I mean so what I thought was interesting is so so yesterday someone tweeted uh and actually I think that both of us that they would buy the new statesman but it's too centr it's no not centrist enough this is on the week in which Tony Blair is on the cover and I kind of tweeted like you know when the last social democrat and the last socialist are in the camp together the last thing they'll say to each other before they're carried off to the chamber is you know this is your fault and someone tweeted back at me just being like oh as if John Reid and Tony Blair were no John Reid and Jeff Hoon were social democrats and I just I thought, I can't be bothered to reply. But it's just like, I don't know if you've noticed, but John Reid and Jeff Hoon are figures from the distant political past. Donald Trump is a figure from the political present. Theresa May is a figure from the political present. Nigel Farage, sadly, is this zombie who just won't go go away. I know what I mean. It's um, like people need their sort of Geiger counter, kind of, they need to just tap it hard on the table to reset it, right? Like, you are not using the full range of marks between zero and ten about how left and right-wing people can be. If you think that the most right-wing person out there is Jeff Hoon, like, you have sadly, no, you need to recalibrate very um, strongly how right-wing people can be. Yeah, I mean, so I think a kind of another good example of this is, so... I am a, a, 
a long-standing believer in, in, in no platform. Uh, obviously, that is an argument that I comprehensively lost throughout my student days because, you know, like Nick Griffin was invited, David Irving was invited to speak. And I think the, the rise of the, the right shows that actually giving these people a platform does not work, right? Particularly because this generation of right-wing politicians, and it's why actually I think the term alt-right is quite useful because... In the same way that, I mean, obviously it's not really a fair comparison at all, but in the same way that actually, like, you wouldn't just go, oh, but Blairites, Brownites, Trotskyites, they're all on the left, aren't they? It's actually not helpful to go, oh, oh they all I on think the far right. right. Is, a, is, yeah. a, is a helpful term in the sense of it describes very well that that particular coalition that takes in... Steve Bannon and the things that he believes. It takes in someone like Milo Yiannopoulos, who believes in, as far as I can see, the career of Milo Yiannopoulos, right? And and, and say and and that kind of particularly that that sense of sort of trollishness of this idea that in order to demonstrate that freedom of speech still exists, I have to say the worst possible things. And of course, I don't really mean them, except as we all know, you can't sort of. It doesn't matter whether you mean to be racist when you call a Jewish journalist a kike on Twitter, right? The effect yeah. is still the same. Like, you know, you can't cross your fingers behind your back and everybody knows that that's actually just a lol jokes. And yeah. I think, so I think that is really useful. And I also do think that there is, and I had this minor rant on Twitter, that actually as a journalist, I want the New Statesman to still exist in five years' time, right? And and actually just randomly throwing around the word Nazi to people is is just a, a, the best possible way in order to provoke someone with money on their hands and a very rich backer. We've seen Peter Thiel closing down Gawker through third-party lawsuits. It's just someone with a grudge deciding to use this as the way to shut down more press. And, and oh, I don't believe these people believe in a free press. I don't think that they, they no, do. No, they don't. Um, but the, the method of that bit of the right is to go on TV and look more reasonable and basically just be like, oh, you were expecting throffing Nazis, but actually I'm very well spoken. So I, I think that I have been validated in, in arguing against no platform. However... Lots of other people who agree with that think that now is a good point to start shouting at liberals for having defended uh, the right of these people to speak. It's like, yeah, okay, obviously those people goofed. But seeing as the people on their own who wanted no platform were not a large enough group to stop the march of the right, clearly some more, I need to recruit some more people and probably litigating the question of whether or not I was right about Nick Griffin in 2009. Can we also have another pop at another group of people who, who need to be um, put back in their box, which is people who think that the, who have decided this is the problem time that to say the left has paid too much attention to identity politics and that in fact the great failure of the Clinton campaign, which lest we forget won two million more votes than the Trump campaign yeah. was that actually she was obsessed with pronouns and microaggressions. She didn't talk about those things at all. You would think from this sort of bizarro narrative that has sprung up that, you know, that, that Clary Clinton spent her whole time saying that she wanted to be called Z and was, you know, fighting against people having tacos if they weren't of Mexican heritage. That is just a gross misrepresentation of the Clinton campaign. What she did do is make a video with the mothers of black men shot by police, right? What she did do is talk about the fact that access to abortion is a fundamental right for women that needs to be defended. And what I'm hearing when I hear those critiques of identity politics is white men voted against Hillary Clinton because she didn't talk to them first, right? They felt that they'd been pushed down the bottom of the queue. That's fine, and I think that's probably a reasonable analysis, but I'm not sure that that then says what we actually need to do in politics is put white men back at the top of the queue again, because that's ident that is ident that could not be more identity politics. Yeah, I think so. I am, and the more you look at the numbers and the down ballot races, 
I am increasingly forced to conclude that things like the Mothers of the Movement video were a mistake. Then white American voters felt, you know, deeply uneasy. Oh God, is it? I think Bobby Foster, author of The Black Presidency, really good book. But he, he kept saying, oh yeah, Hillary will be a more black president than Obama because she has and is talking more explicitly about race than he did because he was spending so much time trying to reassure white America. If you look at how white America voted in this election, quite clearly Obama was right. Dyson, Eric Dyson was wrong. And the Clinton campaign was... but. The the fact that I think that you ought not to be like, you know, it's probably not a good idea that these soldiers shot these people without apparent just course or without much recompense. The fact that I'm in a position where I have to say, actually, I would prefer if the next Democrat didn't speak to those issues because I'm worried that if you do, white men might vote for someone who might literally destroy the world. Is it's like, have the grace to be embarrassed about that, guys? Like, I also think, it, it, again, it's the misrepresentation of the Clinton campaign to say that she didn't talk about class issues, right? She mm. talked about things like the minimum wage. She talked a lot about deindustrialization of jobs. It's just no one ever heard any of that. The amount of time in that election that was devoted to policy issues was absolutely minimal. And I actually also, I'm, I'm just not sure it's, an, it's the correct diagnosis in terms of what things people didn't like about Clinton. I know, I mean, I, I think it's, sorry, I know I was contradicting what I said earlier. I think it's the correct diagnosis for why many white male liberals didn't like Clinton. I don't think it's necessarily the correct diagnosis for why people in, say, Kentucky or Michigan didn't like her. I think they thought she was, she'd been around too long. She was a member of the establishment. They heard emails, emails, emails. They thought there was a whiff of scandal around her. Um, and, and they wanted disruption. So I just think it was, I, I don't know. That's, I don't know. We strayed very far from the original point of Tony Blair. But... Um, I guess actually this is exactly the same. That brings us very circularly neatly around to Tony Blair, which is that again a figure from the establishment, a figure that's too associated with money making. He has got an incredible credibility problem in talking about any of this stuff. Yeah, he does. Um, the The difficulty though is, and I I haven't worked out how it is that the left does this. So I'm just going to say the difficulty is here's a problem I haven't worked out how to solve. Is that we need to somehow get out of the the crouch where we go. I really, really hate Tony Blair, or I really, really like Tony Blair. We talked for a great length about a government which ended close to a decade ago, right? And then at the end we kind of go, oh, but he's got a point. Or actually in the case of, of, of Owen's piece, where he didn't really talk about the fact he had a point at all. It was just, oh, I don't like Tony Blair, right? We've kind of got This is to, Owen Jones in The Guardian. Yeah, we've kind of got to get to a point where we go... Say what you like about him, but he has a point. And then the point is the bulk of what we talk about. But no one does that, though, do they? I mean, politics has become ever more about a kind of puppet show about just how do you feel about a person. And this is the same thing. Actually, this relates to what we were talking to earlier about the way that Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell have moved in a much more Milibandite direction. It doesn't matter to a lot of their supporters because they just the investment and the trust is in that Jeremy Corbyn is left-wing, therefore I trust him to do left-wing things. It becomes a... What's that great Daniel Kahneman phrase? A heuristic, you know, and it becomes a shortcut in the way of you thinking. You think, I can't think through all these issues. That's my guy. Or I don't like all of these things. That's the guy I hate. Yeah, but I just, I don't think it's a coincidence that the right has dominated the politics of the 20th century and the right also has rehabilitated some fairly rubbishy prime ministers, chancellors, presidents, first ministers, etc., etc., throughout throughout the, the the globe, right? And I kind of sort of increasingly take the view that Labour has had what five prime ministers in the era of five: Blair, Brown, Callaghan, Wilson, 
Atley Six, yeah, Ramsey I... McDonald, right? You really actually can't afford for for more than one of them to be awful, right? Yeah, like at, at that point, you you if if more than one of your six is bad, then no wonder the the right wins all the time. Like, and I think it's probably not a good idea for either of the two that anyone has living memories of to be bad. Um, so I think we are going to have to rehabilitate the people who came before us at some point, because I just don't think you can win if your continued thing is, we were rubbish, we were rubbish, we've always been a bit rubbish, but next time it'll be fine. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. Presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.